Well, it is so good to see all of you. If you're a visitor today, my name is Josh. I'm really glad that you're here. Uh, We are going to continue in our series, Who Do You Say That I Am? That was a question that Jesus posed to his disciples, but it was also a question that Jesus was continually asked by the crowds and the people that gathered around him. Who are you? And we believe at Door of Hope, since our mission statement says that we are a community that exists for Jesus as a movement of grace for revival in the city, that it is essential that we actually be able to define that question to the best of our ability uh, according to Jesus' own teachings. Because there's a lot of confusion around the person of Christ. There's a lot of confusion about the things that he said, and there's a lot of confusion about what it means to be a Christian, which often leads to, a, I think, an exhaustion in the church because the gospel is quickly turned from something that God has done for us through Christ to something that we do in order that God may accept us. And so today we are going to be considering Jesus' statement, I am the bread of life. And the power of this statement really is wrapped into an exploration of what it means to believe. And so I want to begin with a quote from Robert Farrar Capone. And then another quote from Henry Nouwen that really defines faith. And I really, I really love this first quote. Capone says, faith is something that I shall resolutely refuse to let mean anything other than trusting Jesus. It is simply saying yes to him rather than no. It does not necessarily involve any particular theological structure or formulation It does not entail any particular degree of emotional fervor, and above all, it does not depend on any specific repertoire of good works, physical, mental, or moral. It's just, yes, Jesus, till we die, just letting the power of his resurrection do in our deaths what it has already done in his. What a powerful proclamation that is, because I think the temptation that we have when we present the gospel, uh, and this is just the natural default setting of the human heart, is to do what I like to call front load the gospel. Do these things, then God will accept you. Clean up your act. Get Get rid of these sin patterns. But think about how ludicrous that is. I mean, there are a lot of things that I had no idea even that, that they would be considered under the category of sin when I came to faith. I mean, I remember when I first gave my life to Jesus, how one of the first things I told someone was, you're not going to effing believe it. I just came to faith. Like, probably don't say that about it. But those questions, but isn't it interesting that we immediately try to apply some sort of moral grid around what it means to believe when at its most base level, it's just Jesus is Lord. Whoever confesses with their lips that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead shall be saved. But you're like, but wait a minute, what about baptism? What about these different things that we ought to do? Are you saying that this kind of person, I'm saying that I agree with Capone. I absolutely refuse to let it mean anything other than trusting Christ. Henry Nouwen takes it from a different angle, uh, a little more sensitive angle, uh, and one that I think is equally important. He says, the word faith is often understood as accepting something you can't understand. People often say, such and such can't be explained. You simply have to believe it. However, when Jesus talks about faith, He means first 
of all to trust unreservedly that you are loved so that you can abandon every false way of obtaining love. For isn't that the great pursuit of the human heart is to, is to be able to actually enter into meaningful relationship, to love and to be loved. And one of the things that I want us to explore today is Jesus is confronted with a group of people that simply do not understand that the answer to their question is not something that Jesus can do for them, but it's Jesus himself is that what he's calling them to is relationship with himself. What he is calling them to is an implicit trust, a yes to the yes that God has declared over them in Jesus. That Jesus is the final word of the Father. That God has nothing to say to the world that he hasn't said and is continuing to say in Jesus today. That God has loved us with an everlasting love. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him says yes to him, says yes to his yes, shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so what I want us to explore today, because it is a very difficult thing for us to believe that God is gracious toward us, that God is a good father who loves us in spite of our brokenness. In fact, Jesus is the result of our brokenness. This is why the gospel is not about our attempt to reach God in the heavens. Man has attempted to reach the heavens many times. No, the gospel is down to earth. It's earthy. It's good news because it's about God's divine intervention into the human predicament, our brokenness, our sinfulness. And so what we have to consider is what does it mean then when we talk about work and faith? And I want to talk first about what the work of faith is, secondly, the satisfaction of faith, and third, the assurance of faith. Because never has there been a time where the church more desperately needs to cling to the gospel of grace. And the two kind of pillars that have been central in my preaching, at least for the last last six months, I would say, has been two very, very fundamental things that I think has kind of created a new trajectory for Door of Hope, and that is having extremely low anthropology. You are so much more screwed up than you even dare imagine. If anyone next to you or behind you or in front of you knew what was going on, in the recesses of your brain half the time, nobody would be your friend. And that's true of every one of us in here. I know, I'm writing a memoir, and I am screwed up. (laughs) We're not bigger failures than God already knows. We, We are more broken, more impotent, more incapable of reaching the heights that we desperately want to reach and feel we ought to be able to reach, and we can't figure out why. But on the other side, that other side is that that brokenness actually leaves room for the magnificence, the outrageousness, and the radical reality of God's grace, his one-way love toward us in Jesus, that while we were yet still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us, that we who were once alienated from God, dead in our sin, which means incapable, if you're dead, you can't climb a ladder, dead. Christ Jesus died for us, gave his life for us, that he might bring us to life. And this is why we need the bread of life, something that really actually satisfies. This is why we must say yes to Jesus and yes to God's love for us. So let us consider, first of all, the work of faith. 
It says in verses 25 through 29 of chapter 6, it says, when they found him, who's they? Well, there was this incredible miracle that the scripture declares that happened the day before in which Jesus feeds 5,000 people, miraculously feeds them with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And the, and the people were, were fed and they were satisfied, but they immediately wanted to take Jesus and turn him into their king. They wanted him to be the Messiah that he was, but they wanted to define what it meant to be the Messiah. And for them, the Messiah was not someone to put their trust in, their faith in, implicit faith, and it wasn't a spiritual reality. It was a very physical concept in the Messiah that the Messiah would be the one who freed Israel from the tyranny of Rome. And it says that Jesus, Jesus escaped from them as they were about to force him to be king. Isn't that interesting? The desire to, I'm going to take Jesus and I'm going to make him be what I want him to be. Uh, and I, I don't think that we're that far off often in our own attempts to make God in our own image rather than allow Christ to make us in his. But Jesus escaped and the next day the crowd found him in Capernaum. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? What a dumb dumb question. I'm not sure why that question's there, being that it had to have been in the last hours from when they saw him last, but maybe they just simply don't know what to ask him and are trying to hide the fact that they want him to give them some more goodies. And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, Not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So Jesus, once again, proclaiming his representation. I am the direct representative of who God is. I have come to reveal to you your heavenly Father. I and the Father are one. He will say again and again throughout the Gospel of John. But here he says, the Father has put his stamp of approval on the things that I do. The sign that you saw was to point to the authenticity of me as the Father's representative, but you're not here because of that. You're here because of what you experienced, the food that you ate. You're still looking for satisfaction and fulfillment in the wrong things. You're looking for ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment from things that are temporary by nature. And what Jesus is essentially saying to these people is that our ends are spiritual. That Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 says that God has placed eternity in the heart of man. That there is a deep longing to surpass where we currently are. There is a hunger that cannot be satisfied uh, with what this world has to offer. And we think about the amount of uh, the, the, the plethora of, of things, a variety of ways in which people try to satisfy ultimate meaning for their lives. And how many of those things are really good things, but still they cannot fulfill the longing that only God can f- fulfill. 
And this is why we see, I believe, at an ever-increasing rate, despair and depression and anxiety, even those that seem to make it all the way to the top of the food chain, that, that get everything out of life that most of us think we would be happy if we had what they had. And this is why we are so just, just unhinged when we see, for example, one of our celebrities commit suicide. How could a person that makes it all the way to the top take their own life? They have everything that life can offer, and yet they get all the way to the top. And the way that I always like to define it, it's like someone climbing to the top of the mountain, and we are all down. We can't even stink and get ourselves to base camp. And then the person gets all the way to the top, the one goal for our existence, and they look back and they say, there's nothing up here, and then they just jump off the other side. And we're like, and we're affronted. The reason we're so upset when a celebrity whom we don't know commits suicide is because it feels like an affront to our ambitions. It reveals that we are looking for satisfaction in the same things that will not bring us satisfaction. And this is what Jesus is challenging here. He says, listen, you have come to me because of what I gave to you, but you missed the point. That the gifts that God gives can never be separated from God himself. Isaiah 55 verses 1 and 2 is kind of a parallel passage that I believe Jesus is even referencing back to. When it says, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. I am the source of what will ultimately satisfy, and you have lost your way. Now, Jesus is speaking to a group of Jewish people who are very much aware of their election as God's chosen people. But you see, the reason that God sent his son into the world is because Israel had lost sight of its mission, had lost sight of its creator. It had put all of its emphasis in its religion instead of an election, a choosing that God had placed upon them that they might be a blessing to all nations. They had turned that election in upon itself and it was about who was in and who was out. And they had lost God in their attempts to protect the very law that was supposed to keep them in relationship with God. And Jesus now is challenging all of their notions about what it means to be approved by God. And so what do they say? He says, he says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. And, and what is he saying? He's saying, listen, the longer you work for this, the farther away you get from it. And I think that this is very true for us. If you were trying to earn God's favor by your religious activity, the farther away you will get from the relationship that comes only through that repetition of yes to God's love. It's an, I always utilize that language whenever I do a wedding, that, that marriage itself is a, is a daily repeating of the yes of love. It's a daily commitment to say, I am submitted to you and you are submitted to me. And through that mutual self-sacrifice, we find meaning. And Jesus says, listen, you don't get it. Because what are they, say, what are they asking? They say, they say, then they said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? How can we earn 
God's favor so that we can get from God what we think we deserve, essentially. Now, I get this because when I first came to faith, I came to faith in a a moment of existential crisis. There were a lot of things at play in my young 20-something life that had led me to a place of desperation. When they say that Christianity is a religion for the weak, I say yes and amen. And although I was weak and realized that I needed something to make sense of the despair that I was feeling because all of my hope had been placed in one thing and one thing alone, I just wanted to make it in music. I wanted to be faithful. In fact, fame, I would argue, is more important to me than music, which is why I'm, to this day, not a great musician, uh, but, uh, and it was super frustrating where I can't even play my own instruments on my, on my own records, because the producer that played all the instruments is sitting in here right now. They wouldn't <laughs> let me play guitar on my own record. Um, the, the point is this, is that is that we, we give ourselves to these things that ultimately don't satisfy, and that's exactly what I did. And I came to this place where my wife was just over it. You're, I went from thinking I was marrying a rock star to now a wannabe rock star. Uh, we're, we're married, she's on the verge of leaving. I'm, I'm freaking out because everything that I had been working for, I just lost my record deal and nothing good was coming and I kept spinning my wheels throwing myself into different projects thinking this will be the thing and none of, none of it made me happy which led me to a place where I began to explore faith. But I misunderstood the work of faith. And I thought faith was putting my hope in Jesus as a savior, not Lord. I didn't, I wasn't really wanting to say Jesus is Lord. I just like, Jesus, I will let you, it was like a, like if we could work out a deal together to co-plan, because I know myself, uh, and if you, if I say yes to you, I'll quit doing these bad things, then you can give me this good thing that is going to make both of us happy, because I promise I'll talk about you in some interviews, and, uh, uh, and, and honestly, my first year as a Christian was miserable. My wife thought I was a bigger hypocrite as a Christian than I was as a non-Christian. She's like, at least before you were fun. Now you're uptight and you're even more miserable. And, and I, I, I couldn't seem to find that, still looking for that satisfaction. It took a year into this exploration when the reality of what faith actually is set in in a way that brought me to my knees and brought transformation in an entirely new trajectory. It's when I actually would say I became truly born again. And that was when I recognized Jesus' own words. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. It wasn't until I got a hold of what faith really is. Faith is a disposition toward God that allows God the right to be God in and through our lives. And that's why I've often used the illustration to define faith as faith is like getting on an airplane. You don't do anything for the airplane. You were held by the law of gravity, but an airplane allows you to enter into a new law, the law of, the law of aerodynamics. And, and what's fascinating is if you're like me, you don't like to fly. I, I'm learning to like to fly because I fly more and more. But but it doesn't matter if you're sitting by someone who loves to fly and you personally hate to fly and have to take Ambien to get through the trip. You're still getting to the same destination because you aren't doing anything for the plane. You simply put your trust in. You're not saying, I believe it exists. You're saying, I got on the plane and it got me from point A to point B. How much we trust the object of our faith defines the enjoyment of the trip. And this is why as I've traveled more and more, and I remember talking to a, to a pilot once, and the pilot explained to me 
the horrors of turbulence, which I still find horrifying, but I do understand psychologically what is going on. He says, hey, just think about it in terms of like a Jeep going off-road. And I'm like, yeah, but Jeeps have a really narrow wheelbase, and don't they tip over really easy? So, I mean, even there, I could still come up with reasons to be scared, but, but the fact is, is the more I understood the object in which I had placed my faith, the more I was able to actually enjoy the experience of the trip, where now I don't have to sleep to get through a flight. I can read books and pretend it's not weird to be in the sky in a metal, in a metal cylinder. Um, but I think that this is the point. This is faith. Jesus says, listen, this is the work of God. Now, I want you to hear what's being said here because this is really fascinating. And this speaks to, and this, this, this whole passage puts a tremendous amount of tension upon God's loving initiative. And that's why I always say that God's elective love is that he chooses to love sinners in their sin. You see here that he says, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. And it takes time to learn this upside-down truth, but Jesus will teach it over and over again in this sermon that doing the work of God is, first of all, God's work. Jesus goes on to say, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Responsibility can be defined this way. God works it, and we do it. Our response to his ability, which he places in us, and in that trust that is given. We, we trust, he works, we trust, but that trust is something that even he generates. Faith itself is a gift from God. Now, that can be a troubling thing in, in that that's what Tozer calls the prevenient grace, that every move we make toward God, God is always previous. But we should also think of it in terms of God's loving care and concern uh, for his creation. That we're told that through Jesus, the Father is reconciling all of creation to himself. We must keep the paradox in tension. God gives faith to us. We must give and are enabled to give this faith back to God. I think Christian righteousness, as Luther says, and genuine service of God lie outside our strength, our work, and our merit in Christ alone. Faith is the true service of God. One must believe that there is no help and salvation outside of Christ. Only those who believe in him do the work of God. This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. This is why Luther would go on to say, he says, listen, God doesn't need your works but your neighbor does. And it is through our yes to Jesus, at daily yes, that total submission, and this is exactly what happened to me, it's when I realized that I actually never surrendered my life. It was when I surrendered and said, Lord, it's not my life to define, it's your life, and I give myself to you that I became empowered by the Spirit to begin a different trajectory, to find a new meaning, to find new hope, to find new purpose a purpose that has extended throughout the last 19 years now and, and over the last 10 years of this phase. Has it been without difficulty? Absolutely not. Has it been without anxiety or depression or times total despair and doubt? Of course, it, 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 those things have been a part of the experience because Jesus saves us from sin, but he doesn't save us from sinning that we might continually understand that we need grace every single day. 
Now, there are Catholics that actually hold, uh, specifically within the, within the Jesuit stream, that it would actually say that sin itself is a carrier of grace if we cast ourselves in dependence upon Christ because everything we do, every good thing we do in the power of the Spirit is still ultimately mixture. And this is why Capone was absolutely correct in saying that our faith can't even be based upon what we feel. It's not that it won't affect our feelings, but it's based upon just that simple. And I had a conversation with a friend the other day that was talking about the struggles of faith, and I said, you know, it comes down to a daily yes to Jesus. That as, as I heard, um, I can't remember Charlie's last name, but he's a regular speaker for HTB, um, the Holy Trinity Brompton, and for the Alpha program, and he often does the opening talk for Alpha. And I love, he's, he's the most disarming personality, and I, my son and I heard him speak at Royal, Royal Albert Hall. He said, he goes, I don't like, any, I don't like what's happening right, right here. It was like he's speaking to just thousands of Christians. He's like, this is not my thing. I, I'm not comfortable with this. I, I question even its validity. <laughs> so he started off his talk. He goes, he goes, but... He goes, but I can't escape the gracious gentleness of Jesus. And I think that that's why the central question, the most important question that you must ask and begin with again and again and again is, who is Jesus and is he worth trusting? Have you found any other option that's better? Because I would argue he is the source of real satisfaction. And the reason that we don't always experience all the satisfaction that God has for us is because this life is not the best there is. The best is yet to come. And in a life of mixture, in a life of brokenness and sinfulness, and the reason that you're a saint, if you are indeed a child of God, is because you're a sinner who has been saved. And those, that sinning continues to be a part of the problem. But the more we learn to say yes to Jesus, the more the Spirit then has the ability to work in and through us, changing even our behavior and our affections. Second Timothy 1.9 says, God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us, notice, it's all God's initiative, God's work, God's grace, God's gift, pure gift in Christ Jesus before the ages begin. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Here's that tension between responsibility and God's sovereign work with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. You work out your salvation, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Notice their question of works is plural. What must we do to do the works of God? Jesus' answer is singular. Trust me. I am the answer. Because Jesus, and this is what was so just, I mean, this is what was so confusing to his Jewish listeners. Because for them, everything was wrapped up in Torah, in the law. But Jesus, as we're told in Romans 10, is the end of the law. So Jesus comes to enter in an entirely new economy, an entirely new reality, an entirely new environment. It's no longer the keeping of the law that makes one right with God because no one can keep the law. All they did was continually violate the law. The law is a plumb line from heaven. It can't save you. All it can show is how crooked the wall is. 
And so Jesus comes and he says, this is, I am the fulfillment of the law. This is why I am the end of the law. This is why love is the fulfillment of the law. Trust me and know that you are loved and allow my spirit to now work in and through you. Authoritative, Jesus as God's authoritative agent rather than adherence to the law is now the central criterion for pleasing God. This is not just a once and for all decision, but it's a daily decision to believe in his unwavering decision to love and save. Isn't this the very thing that motivates? Think about how parents are as good parents, and all I mean by good parents, because you're all messed up parents. We're all messed up parents. But good parents, I mean, that, that our children know that they are loved and secure. That their, that their lives are not contingent upon their performance. Now, I know some of you, like myself, maybe grew up in broken homes where performance actually was the contingency for being loved. Uh, and, and I had that at times with, with a couple different stepdads who I always felt like it was what I did that would make them like me or dislike me, and nothing I did ever seemed to make them truly like me. That's not, that's not what I'm getting at. As a parent who truly loves their child, gives themselves to their children, I think about, do I give my kids tasks to do? Well, I don't know, Darcy and I, maybe not. But we try to. Uh, and, and you think about it, you give, your, you give a six-year-old, that, tell them to do the dishes, I promise you there's gonna be food on the plate still. Uh, when they're done. You you don't say, we will love you if you do this and you do it right. That's not the the, the basis of even trying to live differently, to try to adhere to any kind of rules or regulations flows out of a foundation of love. We don't work toward God's love, we work from it. This is what brings transformation to, to our activity. This is why love has to be the supreme motivation. Our disciplines flow out of our devotion. We don't discipline ourselves toward devotion. It never works that way. We have to know that we are loved no matter what and that nothing actually can can tamper with Christ's total and finished work. This is why Capone says, I refuse to add anything to the conditions by which one becomes saved other than yes to Jesus. Which brings us to the next reality, which is the satisfaction of faith. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst so once again they are looking to jesus in 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 basically interpreting what he's saying literally and he is speaking toward a spirit toward a spiritual reality of what it means to have intimacy with god through faith in him we will let you give us food and drink is what they're saying to him but we cannot tolerate that you are trying to teach us and pose as our master. You're not our authority. Moses is our authority. And you know what's fascinating is that that if you know the story of Exodus, 
and God's provision for the children of Israel as they were led out of slavery from Egypt by Moses toward the promised land. And they end up, because of their grumbling and continual disobedience and complaining, they end up wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years. But during that 40 years, God miraculously provided food for them. And the food that, they, that he provided was manna, this heavenly bread. And the, and the instruction was simple. It said, hey, listen, you, you collect what you need for the day. And whatever it is that you're able to gather, that will be enough. Do not try to collect more than what you need for the day. And when, they, when child, the children of Israel would try to collect more, it would be spoiled the next day. And, and, and it didn't take long before they were like, we hate this bread. We hate heaven's bread. Uh, and listen, I get it. Not many people. I mean, I think that this picture is really powerful. This is, it shows the, the, you know, there was a, I, I can't remember which philosopher it was, uh, but there was, a, there was a philosopher that believed that the original sin was the, it was the pursuit of secret knowledge. The, the desire of the human experience to move on the basic elementary principles. We don't, we don't want this bread anymore. We want something more interesting. And I think that the, even the, the, uh, bread, even the word of God is often, is often illustrated as something that we feed upon in the scriptures and the gospel. And think about churches across the world who are bored with the gospel. We need more interesting things. We need, we need to continually feed this, this, this desire to, to have more and more information. And, and, and it's like we're trying to move toward what David Foster Wallace in The Pale King calls becoming a, a datamistic. Like, like you just want to have like some sort of encyclopedic knowledge base. And I understand the appeal of that. But what's terrifying to me is when those sorts of new pursuits, some new trend, whatever it might be, enters into the pulpit. And it's all about how we can get the most out of our own lives. And Jesus becomes some sort of weird cosmic Santa Claus uh, to here to make your life a perfect life. When the reality is, is that if we were to be honest as a church, that just simply isn't even possible in this life. I mean, I was just struck by the, by the, the, the heartbreaking story uh, of, I think his name is Jared Wilson. He is the associate pastor at Harvest Christian Fellowship, a church that I used to do ministry at where Greg Laurie is the pastor and he was being groomed to take over the church. It's a massive church of 10,000 people. And this young man, this beautiful young man, young family, two boys who's struggled throughout his Christian life with very severe depression and even suicidal thoughts, who's run a ministry to help people struggling with suicidal thoughts, took his own life last week. And I think we don't have categories for that because we think that the satisfaction that Jesus brings means that we're going to be perfectly happy all the time. But the satisfaction that Jesus brings is that no matter whether we feel it or not, there is a God who loves us who will never leave us nor forsake us. And I love what his wife wrote actually the day after he took his own life. It's the strong confidence that even though this horrible thing, this depression ultimately got him, that Jesus never lost his grip upon him. And I think when the church begins to actually function in that sort of reality, that sort of honesty, that we are so much more broken than we can accept. But Jesus is better than we can imagine. His love is more outrageous. 
It's then that we can live in vulnerability, that walking in the light is not walking morally upright. Walking in the light is walking in a place of transparency and vulnerability and recognizing that it is, it, we continuously chase after things that break our heart, allow the worries of this world to overwhelm us. And we are the products of a fallen world that in all of creation, we are told, groans for its redemption. And see, Israel, they were looking for the easy fix. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, it is Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Notice their demands for a sign or proof, Jesus completely rejects. In fact, one time in Matthew, he says, there is only one sign that the Son of Man will give to you, and that is the sign of Jonah. For he spoke only of the cross, the greatest miracle that Jesus works. Isn't it fascinating that the church so often is looking for for a Jesus that will will surprise us, a Jesus that will feed that in, in tense interest of moving beyond the basics, the boredom that we often find within the church because we've heard the same thing, and yet it's the same thing that we need to hear every day because the gospel is not a batch of information. It's a return again and again to the heart of the Father by coming to the foot of the cross. That the cross isn't something you look through to the next thing, but the cross is something that is a mirror that goes back to us that says that the only way to life is death with Jesus. That the cross is not something you climb, but it's something that we die upon. And Jesus himself rebukes them and says, it was not Moses that gave you the bread, it was my father. And they never referred to God as their father, not in this way, not in this kind of intimate language. It was not something that was gave, it continues to be given because I am the source of life. And it was never just for you, but for the world. These three rebuttals shows us that the bread, even the bread in heaven, no matter what, nourishment for the physical body, death is still a reality, and Jesus is offering something unique. And this is why he says, if you believed Moses in John chapter 5, verse 46, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. No wonder he was constantly in trouble. He's saying all the scriptures that you think in them you find life are actually all pointing to me pointing forward to me, because it was always about me, Jesus says. What you are looking for as proof is talking to you. They said, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus did not come into the world to assist us in meeting desires we already had before we were born again. He comes to actually bring our desires. It is when all of our desires become one central desire. It's the very word that George McDonald spoke. The one who has God has everything. It's, it's, it's becoming the royal priesthood that we are called to be. For remember, the priests, the Levites, were to not receive any inheritance in the land. Why? Because God himself was their inheritance. It is the understanding that we are pilgrims in a, in, a, in a movement toward an ultimate fulfillment where we will be one with God and we are waiting patiently but with a, a deep desire to see God put right all that is wrong all around us. We have, a, we have a realistic vision of the brokenness of the world but at the same time an optimism that Jesus really will wipe away one day all the tears. 
I like what Henry Nouwen says. He says, there is a very deep hunger in many people for the life and the spirit, and many people need to be nurtured continuously by the word of God. We cannot afford for the pulpit to become a place where new popular trends on self-fulfillment and satisfaction are presented. And the moment I do that, you should have me fired by the elders. Because the reality is, is that what we need every day, every moment of every day, is grace. That is what the world hungers for, and that is the thing the world does not understand because it is totally foreign. God's one-way love through Jesus is what is needed. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And what he is offering to us is life, real life, life and meaning and purpose. Answer, what does Jesus say? Just come. But it's not just a one-time come. He says, come and come again and then come again. Life and satisfaction is what I am here to bring. Which brings me to the final reality, the assurance of faith. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. Isn't it funny that we turn the will of God into what is God's will for my life? God's will that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Notice the first thing that Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. That is, I am the source of satisfaction and because I am the source of life itself. But then he says, those who put their trust in me, who say yes to me, shall be safe in my hands. I will lose none of them. This speaks of the assurance of faith. If we move from the work of faith to the satisfaction of faith, what is satisfying is to know that God loves us whether we feel it or not. What is assuring is to know that God will not lose what is his because Jesus says that the Father will keep, will keep all those who trust in the Son. And I like what this is telling us about God's work behind the scenes that he is at the back of the story. I think a passage that really, uh, that really defines this incredible thing that Jesus is saying, because what is he saying? He says, he's essentially saying, I shall be with you before you can come to me, and I shall be more willing and ready to give than you are to ask. Ephesians 2 really defines this well when it says that God being rich in his mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, there's that aspect of what we're to trust in according to now and even when we were dead, which is another way of saying not free, incapable of, in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace, by God's pure gift, his one-way love toward us. It is by grace you've been saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, our trust, our yes to God's yes to us in Jesus. And this is not your own doing. You didn't have anything to do with it. It's all about God's initiative toward us in Christ. And then notice what it goes on to say. This is really fascinating. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared, once again, God's hand and even the preparation of the things that we ought to do beforehand, that we should 
walk in them. And then here's the rub. The fact that it says we should walk in them means it's possible to not walk in them. Which means that the freedom, when Jesus says, whoever the Son of Man sets free shall be free indeed, one of the things that I hold tenaciously to around salvation, I believe that those that are outside of faith are literally enslaved and dead in their sin. Unless God literally opens their eyes, gives them enough life to say yes to his yes over them in Jesus, they are lost. And this is why I believe that the call of salvation is universal. And in fact, for those that are hearing this, Jesus has yet to go to the cross. And the invitation is universal because we are told that now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. But the the possibility, here's the thing, is that once we become saved, once we become born again, there, Jesus says, whoever the Son of Man, you shall know the truth, that's me, and you shall be set free. But that freedom is a terrible freedom. For the terrible freedom means that all of a sudden we now have the ability to make an absolute mess of our lives. That we can become totally prodigal or we can can live in daily submission. And this is why Christians can actually live defeated lives and still be saved souls. You're not going to have any sort of assurance of that salvation. But the reality is if, if indeed you've been born again, I mean, can one lose their own salvation? I know that Wesley thought it, but then that wouldn't make sense because then you could say that it's possible to be born again again, and that sounds dumb. So we're going to like just reject that just by how dumb that sounds, to say it. Now the reality is, is that it's possible in our freedom to actually take that, liber- that liberation that Jesus has brought, and this is why we are actually told, do not use your freedom as an excuse to feed the flesh. Don't allow your freedom to continue to return to the very vomit that you were once eating, essentially. No, be a people that recognize that it's no longer the freedom to do whatever we want, but it's a freedom to bring honor to Jesus. It's a freedom to actually live in the light of who he is. It's a God who has moved in us and drawn us to himself. No one can respond to to Jesus unless the Father is drawn. And Jesus, if he is lifted up, will draw all people to himself. So our responsibility as his witnesses is to continually lift up Jesus, trusting that he will draw. This is why it's not our responsibility to save anyone. We're just called to be witnesses. We don't tamper with the message. We trust that the message of God's love is being played out so explicitly in us as a community, a confessional community that recognizes we are broken in need of grace every day. Some of us are feeling God's presence right now, and some of us feel nothing. And that's why this needs to be a safe place where we can honestly admit that, trusting in the foundation that Jesus' yes means exactly what it means, yes. I love you. And just as our own children can go wayward and do all kinds of stupid stuff, it doesn't change the fact that we love them, and nothing can change, even if we don't feel like we love them, it doesn't change the fact that they're still our children. You can't change that. And I believe that this is the reality of what Jesus is calling us to. For he desires all people to be saved, we are told in 1 Timothy. The result is not just life, but it is also safety in that life. And this is why Martin Luther says it so beautifully. The love of God toward us is stronger than the dirt that clings to us. Accordingly, although we are sinners, we do not lose our relationship with our Father on account of our filthiness, nor do we fall from grace on account of our sin. Give God the glory and confess that you didn't start it. It's all his. 
So I close with this really fascinating quote from a book I just finished. It's actually the first book of like hard sci-fi I've ever read. It's a, it's a book by Ted Chang, uh, who wrote the short story that became the movie, The Arrival. It's his newest book called Exhalation. And he's an atheist, actually. But he writes about free, writes about free will through this whole book. It's an exploration of free will. And he actually seems pretty determinist. I think he's an honest atheist. And in, in, in his first story, The Merchant in the Alchemist Gate, he has this profound moment in it where I became convinced that he was a believer. It's clear that he's wrestling with something. And in, in, in The Merchant in the Alchemist Gate, it's about this, it's about this, this, alchem, uh, this, this, this man who, who comes to this gate that this merchant has built called the Gate of Years, and it literally allows him to travel back in time. And this man pays to go through this gate, and he tries to alter his future by going back. But every time he goes back, and every time he enters in through the gate, in every attempt he has to alter it, it always ends up exactly the same way. He can't seem to change anything. And in fact, this is the very thing that the merchant ultimately says, you can't actually alter the past. And he says at the very end of the story, he says, nothing erases the past. And this is the the reason I want you to think about this, because I believe that there is this tension in Scripture, the paradox that you can't escape either side, and churches have fallen too far to one side or the other, and both must be held in tension, and that is God's sovereignty, the story that he is telling and that he will finish. In, In contrast to that, our responsibility in the midst of it. And he says, nothing erased the past, but there is repentance. There is atonement, and there is forgiveness, and that is enough. I believe that to be true, written like a true Christian as an atheist sci-fi writer. (laughs) There is repentance, there is atonement, and there is forgiveness, and that is enough. We can't explain the mysteries of how God's prevenient grace works and our responsibility. All we know is that they're both there. We can trust God will finish what he started. And at the same time, we need to recognize that we need to continually say yes and that it's possible to go the wrong direction as his children, which is why we must continually return to the heart of the Father, not by being perfect, but by walking in the light as a community of faith that desperately needs one another. May we together feed upon Jesus, the bread of life. He is the living word. Amen? Let's pray. Hey friends, this is Josh from Door of Hope. We're in a period of expanding our efforts as a church to reach our city with the gospel, which includes having moved into our new building as well as pursuing church planting. We always want to encourage you to give to your local church and we never want to supplant that. But if you're a regular listener and would like to help us as we seek to expand our ministry in the city of Portland, we'd welcome your support and prayer. To donate financially to Door of Hope, just head to doorofhopepdx.org and select Generosity and Give Online. Thanks again for listening.